Well, it's good to see everybody here on a beautiful Sunday morning. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to the Psalms, to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is where uh, we will at least begin this morning. Know some of us had a rough uh, Saturday, if we are football fans, uh, but hopefully we can put uh, yesterday behind us and uh, we can uh, just appreciate the fact that we have been given another day to live upon God's good earth and to come together as his people this morning to think about him and to consider some good things together from his word. I want to begin our session this morning by reading uh, this psalm. It's not a very long psalm, a psalm of David here from Psalm 24. David says to us in verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. As King David composed this psalm that we have just read, I think we can say that it is a majestic song, psalm, it is a mighty psalm, it is a royal psalm as it talks to us about this king that we're going to speak of this morning. And David probably, I think it's safe to say, composed this psalm, Psalm 24, for some kind of a grand occasion. If you read commentators, if you look at biblical scholars, several of them uh, take the position that perhaps David wrote this particular psalm when the Ark of the Covenant was coming into the city of Jerusalem. And that certainly would have been a grand occasion. That would have been a, a, an occasion for rejoicing, wouldn't it? To think about the Ark of the Covenant coming back into the city of Jerusalem. But whatever the event was that was going on in the nation of Israel and in King David's life at this particular point, it inspired him to write these words of praise to Jehovah. And so this morning, as we consider this psalm for a few minutes, we're going to do so in light of what I think is the, the theme in Psalm 24, and that is talking to us about the King of Glory. As we think about the King of Glory, David says to us here in the first couple of verses that the King of Glory owns everything. He owns it all. So read with me once again verses 1 and 2. Again, David begins by saying that the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David, again, whatever the occasion is that he is experiencing, or maybe Israel as him being king of God's people is experiencing at this particular time, 
it seems to me as he is thinking about this occasion, as he's experienced this, this event in his life, that he is just so overcome by who God is that he is opening this psalm by praising the king for being Lord of all. He is not only the creator of everything that exists, but he is the one who sustains everything that exists. The entire earth, as David begins here at the, at the first part of verse 1, he says not just the earth, but everything that is contained in the world, all that the earth contains belongs to this particular king, the fullness or the bounty of the earth. But also the inhabitants there at the latter part of verse 1, not only the world, but those who dwell in it, that those who dwell upon God's good earth belong to him. He is the creator and sustainer of us. The earth itself, he reminds us, sits, if you will, upon the seas, and it rises up out of the seas. And your mind may already be going back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, where we read that God, you know, created uh, everything, of course. But he made uh, the, the seas and the waters and then the dry land to be separated from the waters. And so I think the psalmist, as he's thinking about this great king of glory, he is thinking about God from that particular standpoint. This isn't something that is, that is unique to Psalm 24. Uh, this is a thought that really we find throughout the Psalms, and we don't have the time this morning to look at every place or passage where this particular thought about God is found. But I want us to notice several of those. First of all, to go to Psalm 50. Uh, Psalm 50. And notice what the psalmist here says. Psalm 50, uh, beginning at verse 10. As um, the psalmist here or uh, God is um, telling them that... Um, he really doesn't need anything from them. Beginning at verse 10, he says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. So a very similar thought to what the psalmist David is telling us here at the beginning of Psalm 24, that God really doesn't need anything from us, that God owns it all. And so lest we think, maybe like the Israelites were thinking here in this particular psalm or throughout their history, that God really needs our offerings, that God needs our sacrifices. The psalmist is informing his own people and us today that no, God really doesn't need that because everything that exists belongs to God. He owns it all. And so there is really nothing that we can give him that he doesn't already have. Sometimes the men that, that uh, lead us in our thoughts before we uh, take up a collection of funds here in this congregation, sometimes they will remind us of this particular truth about God. That God is the giver of all things. God is the one who has created all things. God is the one who continues to work in our life and in our world and to sustain us from day to day, moment to moment. That in Him we live and we move and we have our very being. That God has given us life and breath and all things. Everything comes from God. And whether we're thinking about giving financially to the work of this church or whether we're thinking about using the financial blessings that God has given us in our lives every day to help those who may be in need, or whether we're thinking about giving of our time to help someone or giving of the abilities that God has given to us or opening up our homes to someone in need. All of those things God has first given to us 
And so we're really not giving him anything that he has not first given to us. He owns it all. Over in Psalm 89, there's also a similar thought in this particular perspective about God. Psalm 89, look at verses 11 and 12. The psalmist here says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains. You have founded them, the north and the south. You have created them, Tabor and Hermon. Shout for joy at your name. And so here is the psalmist praising Jehovah again for the earth and all that it contains being his, for creating everything that we know about nature, for creating directions north and south, for creating uh, different landscapes and different topographies as he talks to us here about these two mountains. We're not really that familiar with these two mountains, but I know the Israelites, the original audience of Psalm 24, would know very well about Tabor and Hermon. But he's saying that God has created all this diversity in his world. He is the creator and he owns it all. And then from Psalm 95, just a few more pages over in the collection of Psalms, Psalm 95, beginning at verse 3, as the psalmist here is encouraging those who are reading this psalm to come before God with shouting, with joy in our hearts for who God is and for what God has done for us. Beginning at verse 3, he reminds us again, For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land." Again, I think showing that there is this great connection between God and his creation, that it's his hands that he holds even the world in his hands as sometimes, at least that used to be a song that kids used, that's uh, sang. I don't know if we still, still sing it today or not. But the psalmist is drawing our attention to the fact that Jehovah is the king. Jehovah is the mighty king of all that he has made. And he hasn't just left it alone and said, you know, he kind of wound the clock and just let everything run out. But God is very much involved in our world even today. God very much cares about the creation that he has made. And so all of these and many other texts that we can consider this morning are proclaiming to us that God is the king of all. God is firmly in control of this world that he has made. And yet too often, I think, we who dwell upon God's good earth, we tend to think that the earth and all it contains is ours, right? <laughs> Maybe we have worked hard to get to a particular point that we are at. Maybe we have worked hard to get to this piece of property that we think that we own or this amount of money in our bank account or whatever it is, this amount of success that we have experienced in our profession. But the psalmist David is reminding us here at Psalm 24, that is not true because the earth and all that it contains belongs to Jehovah God. The King of glory certainly does own it all. And I think that's important for us to establish that foundation and for David to establish that foundation here in Psalm 24 because of what he says to us here in the next section. So verse 3 beginning down through verse 6, he asks this question and answers this question, who can dwell with this kind of king? A king who has created everything that we know and even things maybe that we can't see yet or can't observe yet. Who can dwell? Who can be in the presence of this kind of God? So we ask the question at verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. 
In asking who may approach God's throne, who may come into God's presence, David is reminding us, I think, of the fact of who God is and who we are. Yes, we have been created in God's image. Yes, as Psalm 8 tells us, you know, what, what is man that God should take thought of him? I mean, it should blow our minds when we think about the vastness of God's creation. And to think about how great and how awesome and how mighty and how powerful and how big our God is. And then for us to think about, he thinks about me and he thinks about you. But I think David is telling us here that when we come into the presence of God, we cannot approach this God, this King of glory, casually or lightly. That we need to approach Him reverently. We need to approach Him with a proper perspective, a proper attitude about who we are and who He is. Also in asking these questions, I believe David is implying that not everyone can come into the presence of God that not everyone can dwell in his holy hill or his holy temple, as it were. Not everyone who requests an audience, perhaps with the king of glory, gets an audience with the king of glory. That God in this verse, especially verse 3, or verse 4 rather, he tells us, David does, that it is only those who have the character given in this verse that can ascend up to God's castle and having reached the summit, we can stand before his throne. And so think about several things that he says here about the kind of person, the kind of character we need to have if we're going to be in the presence of this king, if we're going to dwell with him. First of all, he says that we need to have clean hands. To have clean hands is the idea of being upright. It is the idea, if I can talk this morning, of being innocent before God. It is the idea of, I think, maybe as he talks about clean hands and as we'll talk about here in just a moment, pure hearts. But clean hands, maybe David the psalmist here is describing for us a person who has external holiness or a person who has external purity. That is to say that when we approach God, we must remove the dirt and the filth of sin from our lives. We must, in essence, wash up, if you will. We must clean up our lives so that we are clean in His sight as we approach Him. And secondly, connected to that, as I just mentioned, we have to be people who come before Him with pure hearts. Now maybe David, the psalmist here, is describing not just so much our external purity or holiness, but now he's talking about even inwardly and most especially inwardly at the core of who we really are. That in our thoughts, in our motives, in our attitudes toward God and others, that we have to be people who are clean, people who are holy, people who are pure. I think James, in my mind, does a pretty good job of putting both of these ideas of, of clean hands and pure hearts together. And in the context in James chapter 4 of drawing near to God. So if you have your Bible to turn over to that passage for just a moment in James chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. James says to us there, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Of course, if you go back and read the first few verses of this particular chapter, James is telling us we've got to make a choice. We have to make a decision about how we're going to live our life. We can either be friends with the world and by default that makes us enemies of God or we can be 
enemies of the world, if you will, not that we hate the people in the world at all, but we're not trying to identify with the world and we can be friends with God. And so it is in that context that James is giving these instructions that we need to submit ourselves to God. We can, God has given us the power, the ability through his son, Jesus Christ, to stand up and resist the devil and he will leave us alone for a time. But then it's not enough for us just to resist the devil and say, well, I've done my job. We have to seek God. We have to draw near to God earnestly and diligently But he reminds us, as the psalmist David reminds us back in Psalm 24, as we're drawing near to God, that we've got to come with clean hands and pure hearts. That takes humility, verse 10. (laughs) That we have to recognize again who God is. He is the king of glory. That he has created everything, that he owns everything. And that we are the created. And so we must approach God with both inward and outward cleanliness or purity, if you will. Because if we desire to dwell with God, we must have a heart that is pure. We must have a heart that is singly focused upon Him. And it's so easy for us. I know all of us struggle with this from time to time, but it's so easy for us to get distracted by things that are going on around us, isn't it? Not necessarily bad things, immoral things, evil things, But it's easy for us to get our lives focused on something else rather than being focused on God. And we get focused on, you know, uh, what our retirement's going to look like in 10 or 20 or 30 years. Or we get focused on, you know, what, what, what are our kids going to grow up and what kind of occupation are they going to have or what kind of house are we going to live in or what are we going to do when... You know, our, our, we, our, our car uh, doesn't work anymore. And all of these issues, things of life that we all have to deal with and struggle with. But the psalmist David is reminding us here, those who can dwell with the king of glory are people who have clean hands and pure hearts, people whose, peoples who, people whose lives are totally focused upon him. And then the third characteristic he mentions to us here in this section is that we have to be people who are wholehearted. Notice David, as you come back to Psalm 24, says a person who can dwell with God, can stand in his holy place, has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. To lift up your soul is really the idea of putting your trust in someone or in something. I think you see this in the next Psalm here if you are there in Psalm 24 to look at Psalm 25, beginning at verse 1. Again, a Psalm of David, he says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, and you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. And so David is, he's asking God, he is, has this, this deep desire to lift up his soul to Jehovah. And he is connecting that, I think, as we read here at verse 2 of Psalm 25, to trusting in God. That he hasn't put his trust in the things of this world. He hasn't put his trust in things that are false, things that may appear to be true, things that may appear to have substance and value to them. But he has put his trust completely in God. Uh, The New American Standard here uses the word falsehood back in in Psalm 24 at verse 4. Some other translations, the New King James, the NIV, have the word idol here. So he's not lifting up his soul to an idol. The King James has the word vanity. 
Uh, you probably remember that word from the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, something that may appear to have substance and value, something that may appear on the surface to be real, but really it doesn't have any substance, it doesn't have any weight to it, it is fleeting. The ESV has the word false. So David's not going to be a person and he's encouraging us to not be people who lift up our soul or trust in things that are false. So he's describing here a person who doesn't go after vain things, empty things, useless things, false things. No, here is a person that has that pure heart that we just spoke about. Here is a person who is singly pursuing that which is real, that which is genuine, that which is true. He is lifting up his soul to the king of glory. And he's not lifting up his soul to anyone or anything else because he wants to dwell with this great king. The fourth characteristic that David says we need to have if we're going to be in the presence of God and, and have this fellowship and relationship with him is that we've got to be people who are truthful. And I think Gavin did a really good job in my estimation of talking to us about that Wednesday night if you were here to listen to his uh, short talk from the book of Proverbs about being people of honesty and being people of integrity. But here is one who speaks truth in his heart, as the psalmist says, kind of in the parallel psalm back in Psalm 15. As the psalmist here, David, once again, is asking the question at verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? And he says there at verse 2, He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So it's not just the fact that we are people who are speaking truth to other folks or we're people who are speaking truth to God, but that truth is a, a vital part of who we are, that we are truthful people, that we are people of integrity, as David reminds us back in Psalm 15. So he's speaking truth in his heart, but obviously he's speaking truth with his mouth. As we communicate with other people, we are speaking things that are true. Again, a person of integrity, David is describing here, a person that, that if he says something, you can count on him doing that uh, as much as it is within his power to do what he has said that he will do. Here is a person who is very genuine. Here is a person who is very sincere. They're, they're not a fake. They're not a phony. <laughs> they're not putting on a mask for you to see that looks good. And then when you're not looking, they take that mask off and they're somebody completely different. And David is reminding us that it's those kind of people who speak words of truth that may enter into the presence of God and dwell with him. I notice here at verse five that David goes on to say that he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And so God says there is great blessing in that for each of us. Not that we are doing it necessarily to be blessed by God, but that is a byproduct. That is a result of us realizing who God is and, and realizing who we are and realizing who God wants us to be, who we must be, if we're going to be in relationship with Him. And God is blessing the people that have this kind of character, that have clean hands and pure hearts and are wholehearted, singly focused upon Him, and people who are speaking and living truthfully, God blesses those kinds of people by inviting them to ascend into His holy hill and to stand before Him. David concludes this section here at verse 6 by saying, This is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, even David. He's saying to us, this is a description of people who seek God. 
This is a description of people who desire the favor, the mercy, the grace of God to be with them in their life every day. And it's those who were of Jacob, truly of Jacob, that were true Jews. It's not just those who were physically descended from Jacob or physically descended from Isaac or Abraham. But it's those who were trying to live like true Jews. It's not just those who were Jews outwardly, but those who were Jews inwardly. Kind of the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. You know, we've got to be people who are of the faith of Abraham. We've got to be people who are spiritually God's people, spiritual Jews, if you will. And even to this audience that David is addressing here specifically in Psalm 24, not just physical descendants, but spiritual children of God. And so, again, we have to have this kind of character that David describes in this text so that we can dwell uh, with the King of glory now and forever. And then in this last section, beginning at verse 7, I think David is thinking about this question as he asked it a couple of times, who is the King of glory? This closing section of the psalm, to me, as you think about the psalm, As you think about all psalms, they really were kind of like our hymns today. They were like our songs. I mean, it was this was the hymnal, this was the psalm book, if you will, of of God's people of old, the Israelites. And so they not only read these psalms on a number of occasions, but they also sang these songs. And so if you can think about the closing section of the psalm, kind of like this chorus to a song, here is the grand conclusion, I think, David is saying to all that he has said of of all the praise that God, that David has given to this great king of glory, here is the grand conclusion to it in verses 7 through 10. And David once again says at verse 7, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. David is calling on these inanimate objects, the city gates and the city doors to the city of Jerusalem to be lifted up, to stand at attention as it were, to be ready to receive, to be ready to welcome the King of glory into the city that belongs to him. I think you see some pictures here if you're thinking of this in terms of Jesus Christ of the Messiah. You may be thinking of him physically coming back into the city of Jerusalem toward the end of his earthly life. And you think about all the pomp and circumstance that, that, uh, that he received that took place as he came back into the city of Jerusalem before he is rejected that there are people who are laying down their clothes and the palm branches and they're shouting Hosanna to the king. Of course, David is writing this long before Jesus Christ lived upon earth, but I think, at least for my mind, that's where my mind goes. It's also possible that David may be referring here to the tabernacle and later the temple and the gates and the doors of the tabernacle and the temple opening, as as it were, to let the king of glory in, that he is coming to dwell with his people now. But whichever of those pictures, and maybe it's something else that David has in mind here that you are thinking of this morning, but David is certainly painting a picture of a victorious king. This king of glory that he has been describing for us in this psalm, that he is making his triumphal entry into the holy city to take his rightful place upon the throne. 
And I think maybe for emphasis sake, twice here in just a few verses as David closes this short psalm, David is asking this question that I have here on the screen, who is the king of glory? And twice the same answer is given. It is the Lord strong and mighty in battle. It is the Lord of hosts. The the answer to this question obviously is Jehovah God. He, he is the king of glory. The king of glory certainly is a great warrior. As we think about through Israel's history, it was God, wasn't it? It wasn't the Israelites. It wasn't their mighty army, however much mightier it might have been than those who were oppressing them at a particular time or those that they were going against in battle. It was always the king of glory who was mighty in fighting Israel's physical battles against their enemies. It was always God who was going before them that allowed them to be victorious, that allowed them to win all the battles that they won throughout their history. And this same God, this same king, is still the king of glory for us today, brothers and sisters. He remains mighty in fighting and helping us not to win so much our physical battles, but to win the spiritual battle, the spiritual war that all of us are engaged with, with our enemy, Satan himself. There are times when it may seem like in our own life that God maybe is kind of on the sideline, that he's just watching us. And we think, where where, where is God? When is he going to step in? When is he going to show his might and power in my life? When is he going to help me to defeat my enemy and get him out of my life? And there are some battles along the way, some skirmishes, skirmishes that we get in with our enemy that we may lose, we may give into temptation and we may sin and we may lose for the moment, but God has already won the war. And our God still goes with us to fight for us and with us. And we always need to remember that. And so as David finally asked this question again at verse 10, who is this king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. I believe David is reminding us there that the king of glory is not only the king of his people. He was not only God, Jehovah God is not only or was not only the king of the Israelites or the king of the Jews. Jesus, as he came to earth again, he wasn't just the king of the Jews. No, he is the king of all. He is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of hosts, as David ends this psalm. And so I think he really ends here where he began, by recognizing the king of glory as being this great Lord of hosts. That our great God is Lord, he is king, again, not only of his chosen people, but he is king of all the earth. He is Lord of all. I think it's important for us from time to time to remind ourselves of who God is, of who we are, of who God has called us to be now in this age through his son, Jesus Christ, that he has called us to be a certain kind of people. (laughs) Again, as Gavin reminded us recently from 1 Peter, he has called us to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And we're going to stumble along the way as we try to live pure lives before him, as we try to be righteous people. We're going to stumble. We're going to fall along the way. But we always need to remember that with God's help, through his mercy and his grace, we can get back up. 
and we can get back to living like he wants us to live. He's the king of glory, David tells us in no uncertain terms here in Psalm 24. But I want you to think as we close this morning, as we're about to dismiss to our classes, think about this question. Is he your king? Is he your king? Is he truly the Lord and the ruler of your life? Great things to think about, to consider here from Psalm 24. So I hope our study through this psalm has been helpful to you. You will continue to meditate upon our great God, and it will be of great encouragement to you as you live today and throughout this week. So at this time, let's be dismissed to our classes.